we'll start uh, today at the beginning of the story. I really, I want you to turn. You can, you can look at the first page of your Bible. The first chapter of the Bible will start in Genesis 1. I just kind of want to rehearse together leading into the, the, the rest of, of David's kingdom, the rest of, of what happens in, in David's life, starting in Genesis. Because what happens in Genesis? You look at Genesis 1, and you're just going to flip through the pages, but look at Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He created a good world. He created a good world where there was creativity and variety and order, and God created human beings in His image to live for him, to reflect him, to live by his word. And this is, the, this is the structure. This is the structure of the way it was supposed to be. You have God, who is the creator. You have mankind. You have humanity. You have the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, who are supposed to live under God's word, and they are supposed to rule and have dominion over the earth. But they're supposed to rule it in good ways, under God's word, the way that God had designed in the beginning. You go to chapter 2, you see the same thing. You see this this first married couple, the first man and the first woman, Adam and Eve, and they are to live under God's word. God gave them one command, you should not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They had a word from God. They were to live and, and, and work and to keep God's good world in obedience to God's word. Then you go to chapter 3, and that's where Adam and Eve, they doubt God's goodness and they disobey God's word, and they reach out for what is forbidden, and they take it, and they bring death into the world. In the very next chapter, in chapter 4, Cain, Adam and Eve's first son, murders his brother, Abel. This is what sin does to the world. Adam and Eve thought they were going to take the fruit, and that they were going to become wise, like God, determining for themselves good and evil. And what happens in the next chapter is that murders... That, that brothers begin to murder brothers. Cain's son, Lamech, is even worse than Cain. He also is a murderer and a polygamist. The next chapter is chapter 5. That's a, a chapter that we often, we, we note in chapter 5 how long people live. But really the, the big point of chapter 5 is over and over again, no matter how long Adam lives, no matter how long his son lives and his son after him lives, they all die. They live so and so many years, they have children, they die until you get into chapter 6 and you see God's judgment on all humanity that their every idea that every thought every intention of their heart is only for evil continually and God judges the earth through a great flood but that flood does not wipe away sin not long after that humanity at the tower of babel gathers together not to glorify God not to praise God, not to bless God, but instead to make a name for themselves. And God has to come down to their puny tower and scatter them in judgment. This is what sin did, did to God's good world. God created a, a world of, of order and goodness, what was right and good, and sin destroys. Then you take Adam. Take the nation of Israel. Israel goes into a, a land. It's the land that had been promised to, to Abraham. And it is described in places like Deuteronomy 8 as a, as a place that is Edenic, that is Garden of Eden-like. 
It is a place with orchards that they didn't plant, and there is plenty of water, and there is, there are, there, just like there was gold in the Garden of Eden, there is iron and copper in the hills, and all they have to do is go and get it, and it is, it is everything, and they have this good king who is a, a man after God's own heart, David, and David, God delivers David from every adversity, and God takes David from the, the field, from the, from the pasture where he's a shepherd, and brings him and makes him king. Everything is right. God dwells in Jerusalem where the ark is, where David is. Everything is good in the land. Peace and righteousness reign until David sees what is forbidden to him. David isn't living by God's word. He isn't the king living by God's word anymore. Instead, he takes that which is forbidden to him. What happens to David's kingdom? David's kingdom. That's what we're going to see in these next chapters of 2 Samuel. And there are not many bright points. It is the continual descent and the continual spiral of corruption into the kingdom. But I want you to understand, this is what sin does. Adam and Eve thought sin would free them and give them wisdom. And it only brought destruction and death. David, not ready to live by God's word, reaching out and taking what is forbidden and committing adultery and committing murder to cover up his sin, brings corruption into the kingdom. This is what sin does. Sin brings death and destruction. And what we need to overcome this sin, to overcome our core problem, the core problem in the world. This is what's wrong in the world. This is what's wrong with David's kingdom. What we need to overcome sin is a king who lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. A king who lives and judges righteously. A king who always lives by God's word. He is the one who restores order to God's world, who makes all things right. His name is Jesus Christ. Everything that we understand, all the, all the things that we see in David's corrupted kingdom is the negative image of what Jesus Christ's good kingdom is like. In David's kingdom, there's now death and corruption and deceit, violence. In Jesus Christ's kingdom, there is peace and righteousness. There is all that is good and worthy and right. And he is the one that we hope in. Just a little bit more of a prelude to our main passage today, which is 2 Samuel 13. I want you to start in 2 Samuel 12. We're just going to kind of try and connect chapter 13 to to what's gone before just a little bit. We're going to start in 2 Samuel 12, verses 26 through 31. and, And this passage really fits with... Uh, the, the chapters 10 through 12. That is, this is, uh, chapters 10 through 12 is what happens during the war with the Ammonites. You know, David had gone to war with the Ammonites because the Ammonites had broken off diplomatic relations in chapter 10. They had insulted David and they had, they had committed treason and betrayed David and now there was war. And so far there had been victory during that war. But then in, in chapter 11, David stays home. When, the, when, when kings are supposed to go out to battle and lead their troops, and when all the people, all the army of Israel had gone out to battle, David stays home. And while he is where he's not supposed to be, resting on his couch in the afternoon, that's when he sees a woman who's another man's wife, and he commits adultery. He tries to cover up his sin, and when he can't, he murders now then, that's, that's what happens in, in chapter 12. 
David is confronted about his sin. He repents, but God says that doesn't take away all the consequences. Now then look at the end of chapter 12 and read verses 26 through 31. This is what it says. 2 Samuel 12, verses 26 through 31. It says, Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought, uh, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. Now then gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and, be called, uh, and it be called by, na- by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it and He took the crown of the king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them toil at the brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. There at the beginning, you kind of get reminded that David's not where he's supposed to be. And Joab says, hey, I've, I've done all the work. I'm about to take this city. Now, if you don't come out here and lead the final charge, it's going to be named after me instead of named after you. And so Joab comes out, and they bring out the whole army, and they, they take the city, the, 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 the city of waters. That probably means they took the water source. So remember, this is a siege. They take the city. And uh, David takes the city and gets this, this great crown of, of gold, it, a talent of gold, 75 pounds. Uh, it's hard to imagine wearing a 75-pound crown, uh, but, but archaeology has confirmed the existence of these kinds of crowns. They would be suspended, and it was kind of like a ceremonial thing, this huge, magnificent crown. And he takes all the, the people of the Ammonites who have rebelled against him and, and have fought against him and insulted him, and, and he puts them to forced labor. Now, how can chapter 12 in like this how can David sin and then at the end of the chapter David wins here's one of the things I want you to remember verse 11 of chapter 12 God said from your own house I will raise up evil against you from your kingdom from your dynasty from within your house and your household that's where the problems are going to come David, uh, you go out through, through the rest of 2 Samuel, and you go through all of the book of Samuel, and David doesn't lose, hardly, he, he hardly ever loses a battle against external forces. Where he lost was in himself. You see, David, you look at, look at him, the description of him with the Ammonites, he is able to put them to forced labor, he is able to discipline them and control them, but he lost because he lacked self-control. He walked on the rooftop, and instead of averting his eyes and turning away from what was forbidden, he lacked self-control. He goes and he wins the big crown. But he can't rule his own household. Now, much of the, the message today is at the macro level. That is, we have, we have Adam, and we have David, and we have the leaders of these kingdoms. And then you have Jesus Christ, who is the 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 head of the kingdom of God. And we want to be a part of the kingdom of God. Let's remember something, especially for husbands and fathers. If you win in the world, you make a lot of money, you have a lot of success, you get a lot of notoriety, and yet you're not able to 
practice self-control, you can't really rule well. You can't really have good authority. You can't do what is good for other people. You might have a crown of gold, you might have a sports car, you might have a big house, you might have everything that you want in the world, everything that is, that, that is recognized as success in the world, but you fail at home, and none, none of those external things are going to make up for that. They're not going to make you feel whole, you're not going to feel like a success. So make sure that you succeed at home. It's good to go out into the world. It's good to be uh, a disciplined businessman or a disciplined worker or a skilled worker and uh, to, to make money and to do well. It's good, to, it's good to, 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 to do well in the world. But our focus needs to be in our households. If you can't manage your own household, you can't manage or have authority or rule well in the world. And that's where David's at. David's not going to lose any battle battles against Ammonites or Philistines. The problems are going to come from home, from his own house. So now we come to the main part of the message today, which is in 2 Samuel 13. And the first thing that we see is lust in the corrupted kingdom. Lust in the corrupted kingdom. Pick up in 2 Samuel 13. Let's read verses 1 through 22. 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 through 22 says, Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin, and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother. And Jonadab was a very crafty man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, please let my sister come and make a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother's brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she had made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he would not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. 
He called the young man who served him and said, For this woman, uh, put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So a servant put her out and bolted the door after her, and Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived, a desolate woman, in her brother Absalom's house. When King David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. You start there in the beginning of the chapter with Absalom's sister Tamar and Amnon. Amnon is David's firstborn, probably thought of by everybody as the next king of Israel. He's the heir. He's the, he's the next one in line, and yet he says, so-called, he, he loves Tamar. So much that he is ill, so much that he makes himself sick, so, so much that he, he can't even get up in the morning, is always looking bad, and he, he has this friend. And I think this is the first place that the, you see the kingdom twisted, is in Jonadab. You know, you know who Jonadab is? Jonadab is a wise man. It says crafty there, but the word there can mean wise or crafty depending on the, the context. Jonadab is somebody who perceives the way the world works. Jonadab is somebody who knows how to get things done. And so Amnon says, he says to, he says to Amnon, you know, what are, what are, uh, why are you looking so haggard? Why are you looking so beat down? And Amnon tells him his problem. And Jonadab Jonadab tells him how to get what he wants. You know, we, have a, we, we live in a world where there are politicians and businessmen and even people in church life who know how to get things done. They perceive the way that the world works. They perceive the best way to get things done, and they know how to get things done. I want you, I want you to understand, they, being pragmatic and being practical and knowing how to get things done, that can be a good gift from God. What's not a good gift from God, the way that this wisdom gets twisted is when a person knows how to do, how to get things done, but they don't know the right things to do. Jonadab, who knows how to get things done, when, when he is giving counsel, he shouldn't say, hey, here's this evil thing that you want to do and here's how to do it. He should be counseling what is the right thing to do. What is the righteous thing for Amnon to do? And here's the other thing to remember. Whenever there's something that you want to do that's wrong, there's somebody else in the world who who will tell you how to do it. They are not your friend. They are not a good counselor. You can always get people to tell you what you want to hear. What you need is someone who will tell you what's right. Sometimes that hurts. Sometimes that's hard, but what you need is a real friend, a real counselor, somebody who will tell you the truth. Well, Amnon takes Jonadab's advice, and in the interest of modesty, I try not to, to go into many details, but he pretends to be sick, and he even tells David, you know, have, your, have my sister come and take care of me, and, and he manipulates her and he manipulates everybody else and 
then when it's time, he overpowers her, overpowers her, and he, as the text says, violates her. Sexual immorality, and not only, not only general kind of sexual immorality, but violence and incest. This place, this place, this David's house, that is supposed to be a safe place for royal daughters like Tamar, it's now a dangerous place. Now I want you to understand where this all began. It began with David's sin. David, when he's not where he's supposed to be, goes up on the rooftop and he sees what is forbidden and he takes what is forbidden for himself. And brings corruption into his kingdom where now here his own son sees one who is forbidden. And he violently takes her and violates her. This is what sin does to the world. This is what sin does to David's kingdom. Sin is is not the way to life. Sin brings death and destruction. It brings sexual immorality. It brings violence and destruction of every kind. This is what Adam did when he sinned. This is what David does when when he sins. He brings this, this Edenic place where David is at one point ruling as God intended the king to rule. When he sins, he brings his kingdom into chaos. The only way out... The only way forward is to have a king who judges righteously, a king who obeys God's word, a king who lives by every word that comes out of the mouth of God, that proceeds from the mouth of God. The only way is for us to have a, a king, Jesus Christ, who lives and rules righteously, who dies for sinners like us, who takes away our sins who transforms us and brings us into the kingdom of God. A kingdom where these kinds of things don't happen. You can even see at the center of the, the chapter, and one of the things that, that, is, that is characteristic of Old Testament and, and Hebraic writing is that the emphasis is in the middle. And the emphasis in the middle here is that the love, that the so-called love that Amnon had for Tamar is turned into hatred. That's what sin does. Sin turns loving relationships between, say, brother and sister, and it turns them into murderous, violent, evil, hateful relationships. Adam's grandson, Cain, murdered his other grandson, Abel. David's son, Amnon, takes his daughter and violates her. That's what sin does. The promises of sin is that this is going to be pleasurable, this is going to give you wisdom, this is going to make life right, and the result of sin is always death and destruction. It is always corruption. It is always a twisting of what is good into what is evil. It takes what is supposed to be loving and it destroys it. It corrupts it. It twists it. It takes what God made good and it it twists it into something evil and ugly. Even see what it does to Tamar. She's dressed in a royal robe. It's really similar. A lot of people know the, the coat of many colors that Joseph has. It's a, it's a royal coat. Same kind, of, same kind of language that Tamar has for her coat. So she is dressed like a princess. Not like, not like dress-up princess, like a real princess. 
And at the end, her coat is torn. And her head is covered with ashes. And she's left at the end of this chapter desolate. That is, she will not have a chance to marry. She will not have a chance to have children. She won't have a chance to, to have a family. This is a kind of living death sentence for a woman in Israel. She's destroyed. This is, this is what David brought in. This is what Adam brought in. This is what we invite into our lives when we sin. Even at the end, you see David. What does David do? You know, in the course of David's story, he is shown, shown the ability to execute justice the way that a king is supposed to. He does, in many cases, what a king is supposed to do. There are, there are men who have, been, who have claimed to murder the king at some point. That's how, the, that's how 2 Samuel starts. You have a guy come up, claims to have murdered King Saul, and, uh, and, and so he wants, a, he wants a job with David, and David has him executed because he's done something that is so evil that he has to be executed. The only penalty that is just is the death penalty. What does David do here? He's angry. And then he doesn't do anything. And you can think of how he would justify this in his mind. Like how can I, who have committed sexual immorality, how can I judge my son? How can I execute justice at my, uh, uh, towards my son when I myself have done this? How can I, how can I, how, I, and, and What's more, he's my heir. Am I going to execute my heir? Am I going to execute the, the one that everybody looks to as the next king of Israel? What we see at the end, though, is injustice. We see a man who is not willing to do what is right. A king whose job it is to do justice in Israel. And now, not, not only is his house corrupted... The whole criminal justice system is corrupted because of his sin. What do we do? This is the way the world is. This is, this is what the kingdom of, of Israel has turned into. What can be done about this? The only answer is the kingdom of God. When Jesus comes preaching... It says at the beginning of the book of Mark, he says that he comes preaching the kingdom of God. What is that? What is the kingdom of God? Well, you see a, we see something like a picture of it when Adam is in the garden, tending the garden. You see a picture of it when David is the king and he's ruling righteously. But the ultimate fulfillment of the kingdom of God is in Jesus Christ. Because you can only have the kingdom of God when you have a good and righteous king. Jesus Christ comes and he preaches the kingdom of God. And this is what the kingdom of God is. It's a place where the safe places are really safe. Where all the dangerous places are taken away. That's what Jesus Christ is coming. That's what, that's what, he's, that's what he's bringing. He's bringing, he's making everything right. He's, he's taking the dangerous places and he's making them safe. He's making them safe from the robber and the rapist. He's making them safe from the murderer and the terrorist. He comes... And he is the one who does away with sin. That's our real problem. That's the core problem of everything 
that has happened this past week in our own lives, at a national level, all across the world. The core problem is sin. Jesus Christ comes and he does away with sin. Jesus Christ, he comes and he obeys the word of God. He is obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ brings in a new Garden of Eden. He brings in the promised land, the nation of Israel as it was supposed to be. He brings in something even better. What, what Isaiah and later on, 2 Peter and later on, book of Revelation, call a new heavens and a new earth. Where everything that God made good in, in the beginning and that has been undone by sin is restored and renewed. Where the former things have passed away, that is all the things about, all these things where there is sexual immorality and adultery and violence and, and people being used and people being, people being harmed. Instead, all those things are taken away. And all the things that harm us in this life and all the things that hurt us here and all the, all the hurts that we've known says that every, every tear is wiped away. That there are leaves on the tree of life that are for the healing of the nations. There is healing for everybody who enters into the kingdom of God. Every hurt that you know, every hurt that you know as a result of your own sin, as a result of living in a sinful world, or as a result of someone else's sin, all of that hurt is taken away in the kingdom of God. How is this kingdom secured? It can only be through the obedient life and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It says in Romans 1 that he is the son of David, according to his humanity, but that he was declared to be the son of God in power by his resurrection from the dead. He is the one who makes all things right. Do you want to live in heaven? Do you want to live in a new heavens and a new earth, where all the things that plague humanity are taken away? All the things that plague you personally, all the things that plague society in general. You don't live in, in a world where there is no more hatred and no more violence. That place is heaven, it is the kingdom of God, it is a new heavens and a new earth. The only way to get there is through faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Everything that happens here is, is the is the negative of what the kingdom of God is like. In the kingdom of God, there's safety. There's no more darkness. It's a metaphorical way of saying, you don't have to, you don't have to worry about the guy who's going to jump out and grab you. You don't have to worry about the person who's going to lure you in. You don't have to worry about the person who's going to overpower you. God takes the evil of this world and he does away with it. In Jesus Christ. That's our hope. It is in Jesus Christ that we find hope for a new future. You know, the kingdom of God begins in those who trust in Jesus Christ. In the wider world, it won't be until Jesus returns that all sin will be done away with. But the place that sin starts to be done away with in the believer is our own lives. In our own relationships. Trust in Christ. Be changed. We've seen lust in the corrupted kingdom. Next we see murder in the corrupted kingdom. We, 
All this follows the pattern of David's sin. He had committed sexual immorality. He had committed adultery. He had lusted in his heart. He had coveted another man's wife. And then he had murdered. So we see lust coming in through David. And we see lust continuing in the corrupted kingdom. We see murder coming in through David. We see murder in the corrupted kingdom. Pick up in verse 23. It says, After two full years, Absalom had sheep shears at Baal Hatzor, which is near Ephraim. And Absalom invited all the king's sons. And Absalom came to the king and said, Behold, your servant has sheep shears. Please let the king and his servants go with your servant. But the king said to Absalom, No, my son, let us not all go, lest we be burdensome to you. He pressed him, but he would not go, but gave him his blessing. Then Absalom said, If not, please let my brother Amnon go with us. And the king said to him, Why should he go with you? But Absalom pressed him until he let Amnon and all the king's sons go with him. Then Absalom commanded his servants, Mark, when Amnon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, strike Amnon, then kill him. Do not fear. Have I not commanded you? Be courageous and be valiant. So the servants of Absalom did to Amnon as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's son, sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. While they were on the way, news came to David. Absalom has struck down all the king's, son and not, king's sons, and not one of them is left. Then the king arose and tore his garments and lay on the earth. And all his servants were standing by, who were standing by tore their garments. But Jonadab, son of Shemaiah, David's brother, said, Let not my lord suppose that they have killed all the young men. The king's sons, for Amnon alone is dead. For by the command of Absalom, this has been determined from the day he violated his sister Tamar. Now therefore, let not my lord the king be uh, so take it to heart as to suppose that all the king's sons are dead. For Amnon alone is dead. But, Amnon, but Absalom fled. And the young man who kept the watch lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, many people were coming from the road behind him by the side of the mountain. And Jonadab said to the king, Behold, the king's sons have come, as your servant said, so it has come about. And as soon as he had finished speaking, behold, the king's sons came and lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very bitterly. But Absalom fled and went to Talmai, the son of Amihud, king of Geshur. And David mourned for his son day after day. So Absalom fled and went to Geshur and was there three years. And the spirit of the king longed to go out to Absalom because he was comforted about Amnon since he was dead. Two years, Absalom has been planning or looking for an opportunity to kill Amnon. And so at this point, the way the story goes, Absalom has a sheep shearing party. Okay, this is a time, this is a time at the end of the harvest, this is a time when when there's when there's lots of food and lots of drink and everybody's having a good time and and Absalom says to David hey you you come you come celebrate with us I want, I want you to be like the like the guests of honor and David says no I can't I can't come and bring all my servants that would be too burdensome for you that'd be too, too many people uh, and and Absalom says well who better to come if you can't come how about the heir how about the next in line for the throne? How about, how about your firstborn son, Amnon? He will be the guest of honor in your place. And, and David says, why should he come? Well, you can kind of see the way that Absalom could, work, Absalom could work on David and convince him. And so Amnon and all the sons of David come out. And that's when Absalom says, hey, you wait until Amnon has had plenty to drink, until he's feeling a little tipsy, and then you kill him. 
hey, I, I am the king's son. You kill him. Be strong. Be courageous. You kill him. And so he does. Now then all the sons hop on their ride and they head back to Jerusalem. And the, the message gets there ahead of, ahead of them that, that all the sons have been killed. And you see Jonadab again. Jonadab, the crooked, crafty counselor. And where is he? Right beside the king. You know where the crooked, crafty counselor is in the corrupted kingdom? Beside the king. Can't listen to people who tell you only what you want to hear. You can't surround yourselves with those who do wrong and expect not to be influenced by them. Expect not to be driven to do what is wrong by them. He says, I actually know, Jonadab says, I actually know the real story. I know who's actually dead. Amnon's dead. Absalom's been planning this for two years. Since the day Amnon violated Tamar, he's been planning this. Now then, does Amnon... I'm sorry, does Amnon get what he deserves? Yes, I want you to understand, this is often what happens to those who do wrong. If you think that you can be violent but not suffer violence, you're wrong. What so often happens is that the fool dies in his folly. That the one who commits violence is the one who is taken out by violence. That's what happens to Amnon. But we can't pretend that this is just. This is not, this is not the, the king working inside the criminal justice system to, to uh, execute a criminal. Instead, this is cold, calculated vengeance. This is murder. This is Absalom taking, taking things into his own hands. This is not self-defense. This is not criminal justice. This is murder. Now, the same way that David had his servant, Joab, Murder Uriah the Hittite to cover up his sin. So Absalom has his servants murder Amnon. It's what David brought into the world. You know, I've, I've mentioned this a couple of times already in a couple of sermons, and we're going to see it played out. You don't know where sin's going to end. David thought it was just something that belonged to him. He thought he could get away with it. He thought it wouldn't go very far. He thought it wouldn't be a problem. And now everything is destroyed. You don't know where sin's going to take you. We know from the scriptures that it always brings us to sin and destruction. It always brings us to, we think we're going to a party and it's really a banquet in the grave. What? What happens is, is they find out that really only Amnon is dead. Absalom flees. He goes to his, his, uh, his mother's grandfather's place out in Gesher. And there's, that's where he's going to stay. And he stays there for three years. And you see there in verse 39, it says, you probably have a footnote there. That probably says something like, uh, David's heart ceased to go out against Absalom. I think that's probably the contextually the right way to take it. That is... David's already shown in chapter 10 that, I mean, if there's some injustice to be taken care of, he's willing to go against the Ammonites. 
but he's not willing to go out and bring Absalom to justice. He says, basically, you can think it, you can follow his reasoning. Hey, Amnon's dead. Going out to get Absalom, that's not going to bring him back. Again, David doesn't do what is just. He does not fulfill his capacity as the king. All because, hey, these, these, are, my, this, these are my sons. How can, I, how can I do this? Well, you do what's right. You do what's right. Even when it's hard, you do what's right. How do we get beyond this? Where is our hope? Because it's not in chapter 14, it's not in chapter 15 or 16, it's not in chapter 17, 18, 19, or 20. When Adam sins, it's not in chapter, the hope is, is not right there in chapter 4, it's not in chapter 5, it's not in chapter 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, or 11. Our hope is not in this world. There is, no, there is no going back before the fall. There is no restoring some kind of utopia here. The only way is to have a kingdom that is given to us as a gift. There, the only way forward is to have a king who brings in a good and just and righteous kingdom of life. The king who does that is Jesus Christ. Turn your Bibles over to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to read verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 28, this is what it says. But in fact... Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in, its or, in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him. Then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Through one man, Adam, death came into the world. Through his act of disobedience, he brought sin and misery and death into the world. David does the same thing in his kingdom. David, who at one point is, is leading a kingdom that is very Edenic, very Garden of Eden-like, very utopian. Peace and righteousness dwell there. God dwells there. Through his act of disobedience, he brings corruption into the kingdom. Then you have one man. You have one man, Jesus Christ, who brings not death but resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ died on the cross 
but because of his obedience, because of his fulfillment of the law of God, he was raised from the dead in righteousness. God justified him. God declared Jesus Christ to be righteous, to be the king, and Jesus Christ ascended into heaven. And he sits at the throne of God and he rules and he reigns and and he will reign there until every power and every authority and every rule that is is against God is put down. Says that Christ is the first fruits. He's the first one to be raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. He's the guarantee that all of us who believe in him are also going to be raised from the dead. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And you can see there, Jesus Christ, he will conquer the last enemy, death. He's already been resurrected. He's already risen to the presence of God the Father. At his return, he will raise all of us who put our trust in him. He will take away all the misery, all the hurt, all the pain, all the death. And then the right and proper order of all things will be established. Adam was supposed to rule God's world in subjection to God. And instead, he disobeyed God's word. David was supposed to rule the kingdom of Israel by God's word. And he failed. We have one who keeps God's word. Who obeyed God's commands. And he subjects himself to God the Father. He brings the kingdom of God and he presents it to God the Father. And he lives in the proper order where God rules over all. He rules as God's king, ruling over all creation the way that it was supposed to be. That's our hope. Our hope is in resurrection. Our hope even begins now with the giving of the Spirit, with the new creation that begins within us who believe in Jesus Christ. You have to believe in this king can't believe in any other messiahs. You can't believe in your own twisted thinking. You have to believe in Jesus Christ. He's the way to new life. New life that begins in you and is completed at the return of Jesus Christ in the whole world. He's the one that we hope in. He's the one that we look to. It is his coming that we, that we eagerly anticipate. It is his life that is in us. Let's trust in Jesus Christ and be saved, to live in the kingdom of God the way things are supposed to be. Let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, we bless you as the wise king who orders and directs all the affairs of earth, who says to the seed this far, no further. We thank you for your restraining hand in this world your hand that restrains evil so that this world evil as it is is not as evil as it could be we thank you for the common grace and the common blessing and the common kindness that you show to all humanity but please grant that we would not boast in being citizens of this earth but instead being citizens in the kingdom of God Grant that this would be a solidification of our life in Jesus Christ. Our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world. Our hope is in Christ. 
Grant that it would be a turning point for many who turn away from, from living for this world, living for what this world promises. Instead, living for the world that's to come. Living for the kingdom of God. We thank you that you know our every need, even before we ask. That you know that we need food and clothing. You know that we need the things that this world pursues after so hard. But help us to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And to live for Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.